we have recently entered into what has been called traditionally the season of Advent, a time of waiting and anticipation. And for those of you not familiar with the term Advent, it literally means waiting for an arrival. So last week we took a break from Matthew and we'll be continuing to step out of Matthew for the next couple of weeks as we lead up to Christmas. And, uh, and, and we're going to take this time to uh, kind of come together and anticipate uh, with all of history the coming of Jesus. And I think it's no accident that Advent ends with Christmas. You see, Advent is this time of waiting, of anticipation, uh, but also of recognition, and traditionally, there's been sort of a, a, a darkness or an, a lament aspect to Advent because as we look around, we can sometimes recognize that the world just isn't quite what it should be. And I think Christmas is, is actually a, a really important uh, time of year to, to really show this. I mean, think about it. Christmas is a time of year when things like wonder and joy and familial love are central. And yet for so many of us, that's just not what our lived experience is. Last week, I had the opportunity to chat with a friend who works primarily with people who are kind of disenfranchised, homeless, uh, dealing with mental health and addiction issues downtown. And she said something interesting to me. She said that uh, for them, Christmas is one of the most challenging and difficult times of year. And I, I thought that was a bit odd because, uh, you know, my experience is that people are more generous at Christmas. People give more. There's more happening. There's big meals being put on. But she said that for them, it, it's an acute, acute reminder of what they don't have. When people are supposed to come and be together with family, they're reminded of their relational brokenness. And even for those of us who don't have those same challenges, isn't it true that oftentimes we come out of a Christmas season feeling like, I don't know, this just doesn't feel like I hoped it would. It doesn't feel like I remember it feeling. You know, you go over to spend time with your family and there's just some subjects you're not going to touch because, man, you do not want to hear someone go on that rant especially if they've had wine. <laughs> There's that sibling of yours. In my family, I'm probably that sibling <laughs> who's going to pick and pick and pick at all of your buttons. It's that passive-aggressive aunt that has so many opinions about how your kids should behave. It's those parents who say that cutting comment that makes you just feel like you're not good enough, or maybe it's your kids. You spend a ton of time trying to figure out the perfect present for them. They open it up and have a temper tantrum. Kids, they're a blessing from God. <laughs> My point is, is that we innately know that Christmas is not supposed to feel like that. And, and, and yet we come out of it feeling like something is not right. Something is not as it should be. We anticipate that something should be different. The, uh, the series that we've been going through in Advent, we've been looking at the work of a, a prophet who lived 800 years before Jesus named Isaiah. And Isaiah's entire writing is actually with this theme of Advent, this theme of anticipation. And he too was looking at his world and noticing that things 
were not as they should be. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up. If you don't have one, you can grab one right over there where Kirk is. Uh, Our gift to you or download one from the app store on your phone. Uh, But we're going to open up to Isaiah, and I'm just going to briefly look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. So Isaiah is diagnosing the culture that he's living in, and listen to how he describes them. He says in verse 22, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And so Isaiah is looking around and he's saying the world's not as it should be. And the term he uses to describe that is darkness. Now we started talking about uh, this passage last week, and I just want to quickly remind us of the context. So Isaiah is writing at a time when Israel is divided into two kingdoms. In the south, there's the kingdom of Judah, and in the north, there's the kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah is writing in Judah to the king of Judah, a man named Ahaz. And at the time, the northern kingdom of Israel has teamed up with another uh, kingdom in the area called Aram. And these two kingdoms are coming to invade, uh, invade Judah. And Isaiah is looking around at the culture and saying, man, this culture is corrupt. People are following other gods. They're not worshiping the one true God. And so he sees the darkness in the culture. And yet he also sees the impending darkness of two nations coming and then ravishing the land that he loves. You know, the response that he calls the nations to is is to turn to God. And yet what they do is the complete opposite. They look around and they say, well, who's the bigger, badder uh, nation besides these two that are attacking us? And there's a, an up-and-coming uh, superpower of that time called Assyria. And so they send envoys to Assyria and invite them to come and rescue them. You know, for many of us, we definitely can look around and, and experience darkness and see things are not as they should be. And what are the things that we typically look to to help us overcome it, to rescue us from it? For some of us, we're like King Ahaz and the people of Judah, where we we seek power. You know, we push really hard to get our person in office or to get our party elected. We protest, we use strength. For some of us, we inoculate ourselves. We surround ourselves with things that distract us, that cover up the brokenness so we don't have to deal with it. I remember as a young adult, uh, you know, for those of you who are like in your 20s, this is a really stupid idea. Don't ever do it. I had a blog. (laughs) I had a blog, and I would only write in my blog when it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and all those dark emotions were coming in, and you're 22, and you're supposed to be an adult, and you don't actually know what that means. And so, uh, thankfully, it's a private blog because it's one of those things where if it comes back, it's going to haunt you in a big way. But there was some darkness flowing out of there. And, and it was this way that I tried to inoculate myself with, with uh, you know, just going in to, to distract myself by writing stuff down or listening to music or jumping computer games. That was my life at the time. We had this uh, comment a little while ago. Um, and I think there's a sermon that uh, Chris did a little while ago where he talked uh, about this interview that he had seen with Louis C.K., uh, who's a comedian. And Louis C.K. was talking about how we're on our phones all the time. And he said, people, people don't want to be left alone with their thoughts. Because why? Our thoughts are, are scary sometimes. And they remind us that things are not as they should be. And then we write blogs about it, and it's horrible. 
For others of us, we chase after that perfect person, whether it's a friendship or a relationship, and we think, if I only find the right group of friends or that perfect person to be my spouse or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, like, they're going to fix it. They're going to make things feel better. They're going to make me feel better. For others, it's chasing experiences. We're traveling. We're trying to accumulate Experiences of things that we think are important. We're going to concerts. We're going to shows. We're seeing different cultures. See, each of us understands that darkness is all around us, and and we're trying to overcome it in a couple of different ways. But here's the problem. See, none of these things actually work. And Isaiah's contention is that they don't work because they themselves are all tainted by darkness. We're going to explore that a little bit more, but it leaves for us a tension. And the tension is, how then do we overcome darkness without being tainted by it? Isaiah believes that Israel needs to wait, anticipate Advent for God to act. That there is hope. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he writes... The people walking in darkness. So he's writing to his people. He's writing to the people that not only are experiencing the darkness of two incoming kingdoms, but are acutely feeling the darkness inside themselves. They're producing it. And he says, therefore, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah's contention is that there is hope. There is one who can come who can overcome darkness without being tainted by it. And he goes on to describe a little bit of what's going to happen. And then in verse 6, he starts to fill this out. And he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He's saying, there's going to be a child, the Son of God, Jesus, who comes, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and he is going to be the one who can overcome the darkness. And then he uses four titles to describe what Jesus is like. He calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is is we're going to actually take a look at each of these titles because I believe they offer for us a window. On one side of the window, we look deep into the heart of the human human condition and and it, it actually reveals to us what our true need is. So often we're blinded. We know we're in darkness, but we can't accurately diagnose what the darkness is because we have no light to shine upon it. And so these titles offer that light. But as we look out the other way, they also reveal to us how Jesus is in fact the one and only truly solution that can overcome the darkness both within us and without us. So let's look at the first of these titles, Wonderful Counselor. Well, it may not be easily, uh, you can't see this easily in the English, but uh, the term wonderful isn't actually an adjective. It's not actually modifying counselor. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's a standalone term. So it's, it's like saying Jesus is the wonderful one and he's also our counselor. And the reason for that is the word wonder actually invokes a series of ideas 
The, the way it typically, typically gets used is, is someone who is miraculous, extraordinary, unexpected. And the feelings that it invokes is feelings of awe, of worship. So the, as we look at how this uh, reveals the human condition, it's calling us to say, what are you worshiping? What holds you in awe? The second term, counselor, well, we all know what a counselor is, right? It's that person you go to to help you figure out how to do life better. You go there and they give you some therapy and help you realize that your parents are pretty much the source of all your problems and you just got to come to grips with that and then you'll be okay. Uh, No, but seriously, in the ancient times, a counselor was the person who advised kings on how to live. And that's what we go to now. If, If we're struggling with how to get through and navigate through life, we look for people who can help us figure that out. So how does this reveal the human condition? Well, let's look at, at the context again. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16, this is the, uh, the passage that is kind of dealing with the historical realities that Isaiah is writing into. And he says in, uh, it says at the beginning of verse 16, he's talking about the king of the time, King Ahaz. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. So he was 36 when he ended. That's not very old. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places and on the hilltops, and on every spreading tree. So you said that wonder invokes this need for worship. And what do we see here? We see the king of Israel. And what is he doing? He's chasing after something to worship, something to hold him to awe. And so he comes up to the top of a mountain and he's like, oh, maybe I'll find it here. And he builds an altar. He goes onto an impressive tree and he thinks, maybe I'll find it here. And he builds uh, something to offer sacrifices to. In fact, if we go on in verse 10, it says that then King Ahaz went to Damascus and he met with Taglath-Pelezer, king of Assyria. And he saw there an altar in Damascus and he sent Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with the plans the king had sent to him from Damascus, and he finished it before King Ahaz returned. And when the king came back from Damascus, he saw the altar, he approached it, and he presented offerings on it. What was he doing? Once again, he was seeking for something to hold his attention, to hold his awe, something worthy to be worshipped. The Bible says that in Ecclesiastes, that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that we have something that pulls us to look for what is worthy of our worship, what is worthy of our adoration, something that provokes and invokes awe in us. Why is it that people choose to move to Victoria? Because on paper, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's a more expensive city, and people are crummy out here. They pay you less because they know you want to be here. So what is it that causes 
people to move. Like Langford is the fastest growing municipality in Canada or one of the fastest growing municipalities in Canada. Why is that? Is it not because people are in search of something to capture awe in their life? I mean, we're West Coasters, right? We go out on the water and, and there's that feeling you get when you're casting out a line or you're trolling and you start reeling in, you got the big one and you fight it and then it comes into your boat and you're like, I did that. It's that feeling you get when you climb at the top of Mount Douglas and you're looking around and on one side you see the Olympic Mountains, you see the ocean spreading out around you to the south and the Sioux Hills to the north. You think, man, this is incredible. There's a sense that these moments are spiritual. That there's something here that is, is digging into us, something here that's showing us that we have a need. Maybe for you, you're not a kind of West Coast hippie like a lot of us, and you're like, eh, whatever, mountains are nice, but you know what? I would rather have an amazing book or I'd rather play an amazing video game or have you seen the latest show on Netflix? And, and why, are it, why is it that these things capture our hearts, capture our attentions? Why is it that we go from show to show, from book to book, from video game to video game? Because we lose ourselves in another world, a world that invokes something in us, wonder, excitement, awe, worship. Maybe for you, it's people. It's experiences. I was chatting with, a, I was at a party last night. I was chatting with a, a girl there. And uh, she's telling me a little bit about her life. She's an entertainer. And so she had uh, been all around the world, traveled all over the place. She'd gone uh, and performed on a cruise ship. And, and, and she was just ex- explaining a little bit of her experiences to me. And it was very interesting. Because the way she described it was like there was something that she was chasing, something that she hoped to find as she traveled around. And, you know, performing in front of hundreds of people that didn't quite capture it. So she said, man, at a certain point, I just, I went to Thailand and I studied yoga. And that still didn't do it for her. So she thought, you know, I'm coming home now. I'm getting settled. I've married a guy. I think hopefully this will be the thing that satisfies this longing I feel in my heart. She didn't describe it that way, but that was the gist of what she was saying. See, she had a sense that there was something out there, something greater than herself, and she had this, this picture, this nostalgia that she kept chasing after and chasing after and chasing after. It's why Disney can make the same movie 10 times. Because we can look at that feeling we had when we were a kid, that feeling of wonder, that feeling of excitement, and and we hope that maybe we can get a smidge of it again. And so we're going to go see Beauty and the Beast in live action, and we're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Uh, All of this stuff really doesn't quite capture the sense of awe, though. And here's the problem. When we start to worship other things than God, they have an effect on us. And at best, the problem is that they just are powerless to overcome darkness. No matter how many times you try and inoculate yourself with feelings of awe, it just isn't going to 
cover it for you. It's never going to last. But at worst, these things actually enslave us. What does it say that King Ahaz did? It says he sacrificed his son in the fire. This is how addiction starts. You're chasing that high, that feeling of invulnerability. And suddenly, it doesn't do that for you, but you can't stop. See, when we chase after lesser gods, they enslave us. And what they end up doing is actually not overcoming darkness, but producing it in us. Now, there's a second title, the title of counselor. Now, again, going to the context, if we flip back to the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's confronting them because they are looking to other things than God for their counsel. So in Isaiah chapter 8, it says in uh, verse... It says in, in verse 19, when someone tells you to consult medians and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not uh, speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. So Isaiah is looking at the people of his day and he's saying, well, you guys understand, you have diagnosed that there is a problem that you need someone to give counsel to you, but look who you're looking to. And this may seem weird to us, but this isn't uncommon for ancient cultures. Uh, In fact, uh, again, I'm on this Disney kick, as you can tell. Uh, I was watching the trailer, live action remake, uh, for the new Mulan movie. And I I don't know if this is going to be in the live action movie, but if those of you have seen it, you know there's this scene where uh, Mulan is praying to her ancestors, looking to them for guidance, hoping that they in their, their own mistakes and their own experience can tell her how to live. Again, as we look to the window and it reveals the deeper human need, we see that we fail to know how to navigate through life correctly. And so we start looking to other things to help us do that. And for some of us, we look to education. We think, man, the the more we can fill ourselves with knowledge, the better we're going to be. And yet, look around you. We live in one of the most educated... No, let me scratch that. We live in the most educated era of all of human history. We have more people who have access to education than any other time in history. But has it fixed us? No. The darkness is still there. For some of us, man, we're just looking for like good life advice. Like how do I live my best life now? And this is why prosperity gospel churches have people flocking in. This is why Joel Osteen has the biggest church in the United States. Because people are looking for someone who's going to help them navigate through life. And when someone says, hey, I got a piece of advice for you, maybe, maybe that will work. That's why Oprah's built an empire. It's not because she gives away free cars. It's because people are thinking, man, she's got some good things to say, maybe. Maybe she'll help me live a better life because we know that we can't do it on our own. And so we look to other things to fill that need. But Isaiah's contention is that those things, in the end, don't have the wisdom or the power to help us navigate through life. Why is that? Because his claim is that they too are tainted by darkness. And what happens when darkness tries to lead someone else through darkness? 
more darkness. It's the blind leading the blind. So how does the title Wonderful Counselor reveal Jesus as a solution? Well, it's interesting. One of the reasons that I believe that uh, King Ahaz chased after all of these gods and kept going and kept trying to find the new God, the latest best thing, is because he hoped that he would find a God that he could control. You see, there's a system in, in ancient practice. If I do this, then this God is obligated himself or herself or itself to me. So I go and I sacrifice my son. That's a pretty big sacrifice, but then I can go to that God and say, hey, you owe me big time. And we do the same thing. We pour our time, our energy, our money. Sometimes we sacrifice our relationships for that thing that we think will fill that sense, that need for fulfillment, for awe, for worship. And yet, how can you truly worship something that you can control? You can't. And yet, here comes Jesus. And let's just look at his life for a second. Think about those things, that feeling you get on the water, that sense you get in a good book, that, that thing that you chase after from your childhood. Now let's compare it to Jesus. I mean, creator God of the universe. He speaks existence into existence. He speaks life into existence. He speaks the universe into existence. He builds billions upon billions upon trillions of stars. He sculpts together all of creation. Every person in this room, a unique, a unique creation of God. And yet, that same God who spoke everything into existence, who built stars thousands, maybe million times bigger than our star into the solar system, to the galaxy. He becomes a baby. He goes through the gestation period. He comes out a birth canal. What's more vulnerable than that? He has to look to his mom for sustenance so he can survive. Now that, friends, is something that is truly amazing. That is something that is truly a wonder to behold. And when we start to allow that reality to sink into our hearts and our minds, that is something that has the power to capture us and it will not fade. But not only that, that baby, that God-man grows up and he goes to the cross the perfect God allows his imperfect creation that he made to stick nails that they made out of materials that he made, so he made, really, the nails into him. Is that not incredible? And here's the beautiful thing. What can we give a God like that? to indebt himself to us. 
nothing. There is nothing you can ever do to God that will outweigh, that will obligate him to you. That is a God worthy of our worship. And then we have this second part, the counselor. Again, we're looking to all of these insufficient things. It's a blind leading the blind. What we need is someone who is untainted by the, the, the darkness, by the brokenness. And here comes Jesus, again, born as a human. And the Bible says he's been tempted in every way. He has navigated through all of life. He has been immersed in the midst of darkness, and yet he has been untouched by it. You go to your parents for advice. That's not a bad thing. They've lived some life. They know some things. But they're imperfect. They're tainted by darkness. You go to friends. They'll probably have some good things for you to learn. But there's going to be darkness. You go to professors. You go to Oprah. Whoever. All of them tainted by darkness. Who do you go to for counsel? Go to the one who has navigated all of life and yet not ever been touched by darkness. And not only that, here's the good news. Jesus, he lived the perfect life, navigated through everything, but he experienced it all. He experienced having parents not knowing who he was. He experienced friends betray him. He experienced pain and suffering. He experienced people being unkind to him. And yet he does it all perfectly. And then when he ascends to the right hand of God, he doesn't just say, okay, I've given you an example. Figure it out, people. Look, here's it. it's all written down. Just follow this. No, he actually leaves his very spirit with us. And if you have chosen to follow Jesus, he says that you have the counselor living inside of you. That you actually have the means to navigate through life, something that Oprah can never give you. God himself speaking truth into how to live. And yet we want to go to lesser things. So let me ask you, what is it that you think will fulfill your sense of worship? A great way to figure that out is, is simply run a quick diagnostic. What takes my time? What takes my energy? What takes my money? Or what do I look to on how to navigate through life? Is my first response, and I'm, I'm going to get down on my knees. I'm going to get into the word and ask the spirit to, to help me navigate through this. Or is it, man, I'm going to go and read a book. I'm going to take a class. And again, don't hear me say that any of those things are bad in themselves. There can be lots of wisdom you can gain from those things. But do you trust them in the same way that you're called to trust him. We're going to look at one more title quickly here today. And that's the title of Mighty God. So that term Mighty God, uh, that, that, that first word mighty is a military term. It, it literally kind of means a hero or a warrior. And so the, the essence of what this term is referring to is the divine hero or the mighty warrior God. And again, if we look through the window and see what the human condition is. And we can look at the context just to, to kind of see what happened. And so I'll jump back to 2 Kings 
And just read here in 2 Kings chapter 16, uh, verse 5. It says, Then Rezin king of Aram and Pekah son of Romalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besiege Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. I'm going to skip uh, verse 6 there and jump right into verse 7. It says, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath Pelezer, king of Assyria, I am your servant and your vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of, of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold found in the temple of the Lord in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it, and he deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put resin to death. Now, I know most of us aren't going to go and hire like a Hells Angels hitman to beat up our neighbor because they let their dog pee in our yard. But what this is revealing to us is that our typical response to evil, to darkness, is to try and overcome it with a bigger, badder darkness. There's two nations invading Judah. What is what does King Ahaz do? He goes to the biggest, baddest nation he can think of, the kingdom of Assyria. And we talked about what Assyria was like last week. I mean, here's the most brutal people that had been around at that time. They used to go into a city, and if the city didn't surrender, didn't uh, give up, after they had done conquering the city, they'd take a bunch of the guys from it, and they'd flay them alive, peeling their skin off. Then they'd stick them on stakes as a warning. And they used to go out into the fields and put salt on them so that nothing could grow there again. So even if the people one day wanted to come back, they couldn't go back to their town because they couldn't sustain agriculture there. They thought, the kingdom of Judah thought, man, if if we just find the biggest, baddest guy out there, man, that will overcome our problems. That will make us safe. That will fix the darkness But the problem is, is that you can't beat darkness with bigger darkness because it just produces, that's right, more darkness. But if we're really taking a hard look at how we typically respond to the brokenness in our life, is it not often with equal amounts of brokenness, of darkness? I mean, just think about the political landscape right now. The pressure, what is it on? It's, man, we got to get our guy or our girl into office. We got to get our party elected. We got to get the right Supreme Court justices appointed. Uh, we got to protest this and, and, and uh, riot about that. What does that produce? And, and it's so funny because when you sit down and, and talk politics with someone, you ask them, like, well, what, what do you hope will happen? What do you hope will happen when your party gets into office? you hope that, you know, we might have some civil discussion about things? No, we feel that something has been wrong against, done against us, and so we want that same thing to be done against the people that we feel have perpetrated it against us. That's darkness upon darkness. We try and work through power and influence. And this isn't just a political thing. I mean, think about how you respond to your wife or your husband. You feel like they've said something against you. What do you say? Something against them. And here's the problem. Is it's, it's the law of escalation. I do this, you do that. This happens, this happens, and the whole thing's a mess. And so how then do we overcome darkness without producing more darkness? Isaiah's contention 
His call to us is to Advent, to wait for the coming of one who can indeed overcome darkness without being tainted by it. Ray Ortland, a scholar, writing on the book of Isaiah, says it this way, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The invitation of Christmas is to come to see how that child has indeed overcome darkness. See, in order to overcome darkness, you have to be more powerful than it indeed. But the methods you use cannot be methods of darkness. And what do we see? What does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he allows darkness to throw itself upon him at the cross. And it does its worst. In fact, the image that the Bible describes of that moment is that the whole space is turned to darkness. That's not unintentional. That's capturing this moment in Isaiah. And when it looks like all is lost, that darkness has truly won, that it is the most powerful, what happens? is thrown everything it has against Jesus, putting him to death, and then he rises up. He overcomes. And what does Jesus say? People are talking to him about what's going on. He says, do, do you not know that I could have raised up legions of angels to come and wipe everyone out? But he doesn't do that. He actually allows darkness to throw itself upon him. when we start to understand that in this, Jesus has truly overcome darkness, it completely transforms the way that we as humans live. Jesus writing to his followers in Matthew, and we, we read this, I think, earlier this year. In Matthew chapter 5, he, he starts to talk about what it will look like when we start to understand that Jesus is indeed our mighty God, our divine warrior who has overcome darkness on behalf. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, he writes, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You have heard that it was said, darkness for darkness. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And again, he says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may be like God, the divine, mighty warrior. When this starts to transform us, it changes the way that we respond. And, and essentially what we do is spiritual judo. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The full force of darkness thrown against him. And yet he allows it to do so. And in that moment, gives death its death blow. Brokenness its death blow. Darkness its death blow. It reminds me of a, a story I heard uh, someone in our church share with me a few months ago. Uh, him and his family were doing some work in their yard. I think they were cutting down some trees. And one day their neighbor came over and was blasting, swearing, yelling, super angry. You know, the very picture of relational darkness. 
And what they could have done is just got angry back, yelled back. And they were in the right. The, the, the trees that they were talking about were in their property. They, were, uh, they had the right to cut them down. Uh, but instead of that, they calmly just said, hey, you know what? How can we serve you? What would you like us to do with this? And, and that completely changed the situation, diffused the neighbor. It was evil throwing itself upon them, and yet it did not win. So imagine this Christmas, what it would be like if we lived like that. When things get amped up, when people are angry with us, when conversations get out of hand. What would it look like for us to parent that way? What would it look like for us in our relationships with our friends or our spouse? And so, as we come to the end, we're invited again to a place of Advent. You see, we live in an already not yet reality. We live in a place where we know that Jesus has come. He's given us his spirit. He is the one that we get to go to as our counselor. He is the one worthy of our worship. And Jesus is the divine warrior who has overcome evil, not through terror, but as a child who grows up to be a man, who goes to the cross and allows the fury of evil to fall upon him and yet stays silent. John, one of Jesus' earliest followers, describes him this way. John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all mankind. And listen to this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We now have access to that light and we look forward in hope to the day when all there is is light. And so what is the invitation of Advent? What is the invitation of Christmas? Church, you hear us say this all the time, we're a one-trick pony. The invitation is to do what we always call you to do, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance is the act of turning away from or turning towards. If you've looked through this and you've said, hey, you know what? When I survey my life, there are things that I'm looking to to capture my worship that I can control, and I need to go to the one that I can never control. There are things that are enslaving me, that I've worshiped, that I've given to, and yet I need to go to the one who has given to me. If you're looking at everything to find advice on how to live, turn from that and turn to the one who has lived it perfectly on your behalf, who knows every nook and cranny of this dark world and knows how to walk in the light and come and turn in trust to the divine warrior, the one who has overcome evil without using evil. We're going to get to respond now in a couple of different ways. First of all, we're going to get to respond through singing. And singing is not just this exercise of, you know, singing together. It's not like uh, 
you know, church karaoke. This is a chance for us to listen to these incredible words about who Jesus is. And I encourage you as you stand to sing in a moment to read the words and allow them to sink in. These are words that tell us how worthy Jesus is of our worship that can, if you let them, invoke a sense of awe in you. A sense of awe that will not fade, but will grow in eternity. We're going to get to respond through giving together. One of the things that often captures our hearts, one of the things that we rely on, whether it's for overcoming, whether it's for how to live, is money. It's such an easy thing to capture our hearts. And yet, Jesus is sufficient in a way that money never can be. And so the invitation today is an invitation to trust in him. And one of the ways that we respond is by saying, money, I don't trust that you've got me. I trust that Jesus has me. And that he's actually given this to me and so I can entrust him to take care of me and I can entrust him to use this for what's best. And so we give the same way that we have received from Jesus willingly, joyfully, and sacrificially. We're going to get to respond through communion as you take that cracker that represents the body of Jesus broken by evil, dipped into the blood, the blood of Jesus shed by darkness. Let it be a reminder that he has indeed overcome. And friends, we're going to get to respond in prayer. You're going to get to go to the divine counselor, the one who knows how to live. And lay before him the path of your life and ask him, the only one who truly knows how to navigate it, what then should I do? Let me pray for us. Father, as we come into this Christmas season, we want to thank you that you are a God who is so worthy of our worship. And Father, even though we did not know that we were seeking you, we could feel that there was something more out there that we needed. Father, at the manger, you showed us what it was, a baby the God-child who would go to the cross on our behalf. Father, we know that we don't have life. We don't got it. We fail as parents. We fail as friends. We fail as kids. We fail as coworkers. We fail as neighbors. And yet, Father, you are so good. And your invitation to us is to come to you to allow you to guide us. Father, so often our proclivity is to try and use force to overcome force, to try and use darkness to overcome darkness, and all we do is make a mess of things. The good things that we hope for become corrupted. And yet, Father, in your greatest act of mercy and grace, you took upon yourself while we were enemies the consequences of our darkness. You did not return to darkness, but overcame it with love. And so, Father, I pray that the love that we have experienced from you would flow out of us, that this Christmas, that our friends and our family would experience it as well. We ask all this in your name. Amen.